So you've written this book, Global Humility. What's one thing that you'd like people to take away having read this book? Well, I think the big idea is um, to say churches in different places need to look different from each other. And so a big part of going to a different country uh, to start a church is actually to spend a lot of time trying to explore that context, ask questions, try and find out what's going to work here. And I'll tell some stories about that later. But I think the big idea is going, we're not just trying to take, oh, this is what it looked like in the UK, so let's export it all over the world, but go, how can we do something that's sensitive to context, that's sensitive to culture, that's still going to be the gospel of Jesus, but, but looks very different in different places. Yeah. And um, we're going to have some time for praying for each other at the end of this seminar. Um, but if you've got some questions feel free to ask them towards the end or just find Andy at the end. Um, he's going to make himself available if you've got some questions you want to talk to him afterwards. Um, what's your role and also what's your background? Um, and then I'll leave you to just get on with the other stuff. Okay, I was born and grew up in Cyprus, so the Greek side of Cyprus. Uh, and um, growing up, we always hated Turkish people. Uh, all of our games were like, ah, let's play Kill the Turks. You can be the Turks. We'll all kill you today. Um, and then uh, when I came to faith when I was 17, I felt God speak to me about moving to Turkey, uh, which was a big issue for a lot of my friends growing up. And um, again, I'll tell some of the stories later. But so we moved together uh, as a family with a bunch of other people to Istanbul to study Turkish and then to start Turkish speaking churches. And we've been in Istanbul for some time. And then we've recently relocated to the UK. We're still in a little bit of reverse culture shock. Don't really understand this country. Um, and uh, my role now, I'm based in Reading, and I, I work half my time for our local church in Reading, which is part of the New Frontiers family of churches, so Reading Family Church. Half my time, I'm the teaching pastor there. Uh, the other half of my time, I'm involved uh, serving churches in a wide variety of Middle Eastern contexts. So I was in Cairo last week. It was freezing. Who knew it could be so cold in the middle of the desert? Um, and so, so that's my role. That's what I'm involved in. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming to this seminar. And um, are we okay? We're not okay. I don't mind. There we go. Great. So my family and I, um, we moved to Istanbul with a group of other friends. We had four kids under the age of six at the time. And we said, let's move to Istanbul. Let's spend a couple of years studying Turkish. And then we're going to start a Turkish-speaking uh, church in the great city of Istanbul. About 20 million people, so it's like more than twice the size of London. Big city, very small number of Christians, very few churches. So that was our plan. So we spent a couple of years studying Turkish. Uh, and then our team, so it's a bunch of families from England and from the U.S., we said, okay, it's time to start a church. How do we do that? Like, so we rented a, we rented a venue, and um, we opened a website. Uh, how do you start a church? You know, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? And then we started uh, meeting every Sunday. And we're, we're meeting in Turkish, really bad Turkish. So we're singing a few songs, and then we're praying our prayers, which were pretty much like, thank you, God, that you love us. Amen. That was about the limit of our language. And, and so it's a bunch of foreigners doing church in Turkish. It was really embarrassing. And um, we had this prophetic word given to us. And most church plants get a prophetic word like this. And it was, God's going to give you a really influential, really well-known, big circle of influence person. They're going to get saved. And we were like, yes, we like that. And then this guy phones up. And he's a really influential, really well-known, big circle of influence tattoo artist. And we weren't expecting that. We thought it's going to be like politician, headmaster, I don't know. But this guy, he does the tattoos 
for all the mafia, for all the football players, uh, for all the pop stars. He knows everybody. He actually he trained in London 30 years ago and then moved to Istanbul and opened the first tattoo parlor in Istanbul and then raised lots of other young tattoo artists and sent them all over Turkey. It's like apostolic tattoo artists. And, um, and this guy, he phones us up and he says, you know, I've, I've, um, I've decided there's a God and I want to come to a church and I've just gone on the internet and you've just opened a church next to my house. How do I become a Christian? And we were like, whoa, that's what we've been praying for. And he said, I've just got one question. If I become a Christian, when I die, where are you going to bury me? And I was like, you know, they never trained me for that question in England. So I said, oh, in England, we just burn people. <laughs> Which, if you've ever read your Bible, in the Middle East, burial is really important. But the point is, it's a Muslim country. All the graveyards are Muslim. So where do you bury Christians? And actually, by the grace of God, a couple of years ago, one of our churches was able to open the first Protestant graveyard in that part of Turkey. Actually, just in time for one brother who passed away and was able to be buried there. It's actually, the, the, the plots are going at quite a premium now. It's good business. If you think, what's kingdom business? It's opening graveyards in the Middle East. Um, so this guy started coming to our church, and um, his girlfriend, who he was living with, uh, came to have a look as well. And you can just imagine it. We're this bunch of, it's a little room like this, bunch of foreigners in really bad Turkish trying to sing songs. And then this one Turkish guy just standing there going, what is going on? And she, and she laughed at us. She came and visited, she laughed. She runs a cafe. And that night in her cafe, she was telling all her friends about us. It's the kind of the power of negative gossip, you know? Like, they're crazy foreigners, they've started this church, and they're stupid, what do they think they're gonna do? And she laughed at us. And that night she had a dream. And in her dream, the Lord Jesus appeared to her and he said to her, don't mock my church. Which is great for us because we weren't sure if Jesus was owning us or not or embarrassed. Oh, phew, we're his church. <laughs> really happy to hear that. And, and, and you've got to remember, these are people with no, no gospel context, no Bible, no understanding of the scripture at all. She said, and then he showed me his hand and in his hand there was a mark, a wound. And he said to her daughter, do you think this hurt me? And she said, yeah. And he said, give me your hand. So in her dream, she gave her hand to the Lord, and he touched her here. And she said, when he touched me, I felt shame. I felt pain. I wanted the ground to open up and swallow me. And when he took his finger away, there was a mark there, a wound. And when she woke up in the morning, it was still there. So she came and found me, and she showed me. And she said, Andy, Andy, this happened. What do you think it means? And I said, I don't know. It doesn't happen in England. <laughs> I, what would you say? <laughs> I said, maybe the Lord wants to speak to you. Ask him for another dream. So that night before she went to sleep, she prayed for the first time in her life. And she said, uh, dear God, if you're real, and I think you might be, um, please give me another dream. And, she, and Turkish people love soap operas. And she said, it was like a soap opera. Every night for three months, she lay down and she got another installment. And she got phenomenal revelation. She'd come and she'd say, so who was Ezekiel and why did the glory leave the temple and why was God upset about it? And you're like, whoa! <laughs> Some of us had to study for a long time for that stuff. <laughs> and um, at the end of, th this was the January, at the end of three months on Easter Sunday, she also gave her life to the Lord. And in that time, within those few months, five or six people from their circle had also come to faith and we baptized them all together. And 
that's how we started this church in Istanbul. And the reason I tell you that story is it actually contains a lot of, it partly is a really cool story. It's my best one. I've got other stories, but that's the best one, okay? Um, but partly because it illustrates a lot of the kind of pieces that I want to talk about today as we go forward. And so the idea really of what I want to do today is that we're going to be based in a story from the book of Acts, so Acts chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, you might want to go there. And we're going to be, it's a very well-known story of the, the kind of the group of people with Paul going on mission to Macedonia, to Philippi. It's that story. And I, I just want to pull some things out of that story that really are stuff that we're learning at the moment about mission, about going to other nations, about cross-cultural church planting, about some of the things that God is doing and some of the things that we can line up with. So I'm just going to be pulling some things out of this story today. And um, there'll be quite a lot of things, and not all of them will resonate with everyone. But my prayer is that each person here, that there'll be something in this story and you think, Okay, that's God speaking to me. That one, that's the thing for me. Does that make sense? So I just want to pray, and then we're going to uh, be in this story together from Acts chapter 16. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the incredible sense of the Holy Spirit's presence this morning in the meetings and right now in this room. And Holy Spirit, you're the spirit of mission. Please speak to each one here. Be our teacher. Be our guide be the one that switches the lights for some people from red to amber and for other people from amber to green. Uh, be the one that, that moves people to new places, that, that fills their tool bags with all the tools that they're going to need. Lord, you can do so much in a short time. I really am asking that you come and intensely work in some of the dear ones here. Um, I just see a picture for someone, I think it's... Uh, this section here at the back on this side and I see really clean trainers and um, you're really proud of the clean trainers but actually um, the Lord says the reason I gave them to you is so that they would get dirty so that they would get muddy and um, it's, a, it's a metaphor for the kind of the training and the preparation that you've been in and it's, it's shiny and it's fresh and it's really great but actually it, the Lord says the whole reason for that was so that it would be muddy and so that they'd get dirty so I just I just feel there's someone here that's that I also I feel there's someone sitting in this section over here this is a completely different thing uh, but I feel you've got knee pain uh, and kind of chronic pain in your right knee someone in this section and at the end of the meeting I'd love to pray for you I feel God wants to give you healing is that okay we do that kind of stuff is that right great never quite sure when you go to a new place but you're the vineyard you love this kind of stuff okay <laughs> You taught us this kind of stuff. Okay, here we go. We're going to just look at a few things from this story and see how we go. So uh, this story starts in Acts 16, verse 9, and you've got a team of people. You've got Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. There's a group of guys together. And I think the first thing here is just to understand that there is a, there is a team approach. It's never just an individual thing. It's never just, oh, this is my personal call, so I'm going to go and do this. That's at, actually thoroughly unbiblical. Uh, and... In kind of cultural analysis of cultures, most cultures in the world are quite group-orientated, communalistic. And then right at the left-hand side, you've got England, Australia, and America, which are abnormally individualistic. Like, culturally, historically, that's really abnormal. And it's just important to say that, because some people get really tied up in what is my personal calling, what is my personal destiny, God speak to me. 
And we don't devalue that, but so often in Scripture, it's groups of people hearing God together, processing that together, making decisions together, and even moving to new places on mission together. And it's an approach that we're really uh, trying to foster in our context. So we'll have a team this year move to a new Middle Eastern city, several families uh, from different churches, but all within the same movement. So they've got the same DNA. Because often what happens is you go and you join a team with a mission agency somewhere with other people that came from different kind of background. And, and often there can be such a dissonance, actually, in the vision and mission of that team because you've got different value systems, different theology, different DNA. And isn't it better if we can grab kind of groups of people that have all come from the same kind of stable and go, let's go together somewhere. It, it, it rules out so much of those team attrition issues. You're already starting on the same page in terms of vision and mission and aspiration. And so really kind of commending that approach. And so this team's really diverse. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, they're from different places. They've got different gifts. You know, Paul's called an apostle. Silas is called a prophet. Timothy's called a pastor. Luke's a doctor. That's, that is there as like the team, the team physiotherapist, I think. Um, and so you've got different people from different places, from different skills. And so often, if you plant a diverse seed, you get a diverse plant that comes up the other side. And the more, the more diverse the team is that you can plant into a place, the more diverse output you'll have at the other end. Because the whole of the tree is in the seed. And so the, it begins with this kind of team approach. Secondly, they're really intentional. So just reading from verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul sees the vision, but the team kind of process it, weigh it together. And we conclude that God's called us to this place. And they were already on mission in Anatolia together. But now God is leading them to a new place, to an unreached place, to a, a whole different, you know, some would say this is when the gospel crossed from Asia into Europe for the first time. They didn't actually have continental barriers then, but this is the first time the gospel comes into what we call Europe. And so they're going cross-cultural, they're going to the unreached, they're going to a new space. And um, the, they see this vision, come and help us, but then they process it and they conclude God's called us to preach the gospel. It's really interesting. There's lots of different ways of helping. You know, you can help with humanitarian projects, you can help with socioeconomic development, you can help with education. But their conclusion is a straight line from come and help us till we concluded that we're going to preach the gospel to them. And so it's a very straightforward kind of gospel thing. And then what they do is they go there, they preach the gospel, and they start communities of believers. They start churches. So it's a straight line from come and help us to we decided to preach the gospel to them to we saw some churches planted. And this is a big thing, certainly in the kind of the book of Acts, in terms of every place that they go, there's always feeding the hungry. There's always caring for orphans. There's always moving towards the margins of society. But it always ends up with a community planted, a church planted, a new group of believers. Number three... Um, setting sail. So then in verse 11, it says, we, we set sail. We got in the boat. Off we went. And in the ancient world, people ha- hated uh, traveling. They hated journeys. And they particularly hated going on the sea. It was very scary, not very safe, high risk. 
But there's this moment where they say, okay, it's not just an idea. Let's get in the boat and let's go. And again, I feel for some people here, that is actually where you're up to. You've done your preparation, you're thinking, you're dreaming, you're imagining. But there comes a time to actually get in the boat and push off from the shore. And that's, a, that's the scary bit. That's the risk bit. And you never want to take the, however much we can train and upskill on mission, you can never take the risk out of it and the danger out of it. That's what makes it an adventure. And so there's this time to actually get in the boat and set sail. And then uh, in verse 12, it says, and we came to Philippi, which is a leading city. And um, there's so many uh, good reasons to go to kind of key cities amongst the unreached. If you think about the unreached nations of the world or the 1040 window, so the area between 10 degrees north of the equator and 40 degrees north of the equator where most of the world's unreached nations are, but also where most of the world's poor are. So often, uh, the kind of the key place to start is in some of the major cities. Um, and that's for so many reasons. It's often easier for foreigners to live in those places. It's quite hard as a foreigner to turn up in a tiny village in Pakistan. But if you go to a major city, the more cosmopolitan, you're more likely to be accepted. But also because people from all over those places are often found in the cities. And so you can, by reaching people in the city, you can affect uh, a much wider area. And we've seen this happen over and over again. So um, some friends of ours uh, started a church in Izmir in Turkey, um, on the west coast of Turkey. And um, one of the young men that got saved in the church is from a closed Central Asian country. So a closed Muslim Central Asian country that no foreigners can get into. But he came to study medicine in Izmir. And while he was there, he came to faith. And he stayed in that church as long as he was studying medicine. And then he went back to his country. So we call him Denise. It's not his name, but it's what we call him. And Denise, now in his country, he's planting house churches all over his nation. It's incredible. He's a, he's a smart guy. He's a doctor. He runs several businesses. He said the government keep closing his businesses down, so he keeps opening new ones. So he's like constantly moving. But he's also planting house churches across his nation. And you just think, we couldn't get to him, but he was able to come somewhere that he could access. And you'll have many stories. I've already met people in this room with stories like that. Um, uh, story from Beirut. So uh, there's so many amazing things coming out of the crisis in Syria at the moment. It's a horrendous humanitarian crisis, the Syrian refugee issue. But out of it, God is doing some incredible things in that nation. And I'm sure you will have touched that or heard some stories. Uh, but one lady that we know, uh, she's from Aleppo, so Muslim Syrian lady, and she, um, she has a dream. And in her dream, she sees Mary. And Mary says to her, I've lost my son. Help me find my son. And then in her dream, she crosses a border into another country. And when she crosses that border into the other country, she finds Mary's son and she feels peace and joy. And then she wakes up. One week later, the situation in Aleppo got so bad that her family had to flee for their lives. And as they're fleeing to the border into Lebanon, she recognizes the border from her dream. And she's like, this is the border from my dream. On the other side of this border, I'm going to find Mary's son. And I'm going to feel peace and joy. And oh, I want to feel that. And so they come into Beirut. 
and they're walking around on the streets of Beirut. And she goes up to a woman that she sees and she says, excuse me, do you know Mary's son? I'm looking for Mary's son. And it just so happens that the woman that she approached was a believer in Jesus. And the woman says to her, yeah, I know him. I'm going to introduce him to you. His name is Jesus. And this lady and her whole family came to faith. And now they've been able to go back to Syria with their new faith. It's amazing. And so, but, but what happens is you've got a believer who's in this key city, Beirut, and people from other areas, they come to the key cities looking for refuge, looking for work. And, so if, and that's what Paul's doing here with Philippi. He's like, let's reach this city. And by doing that, we can actually have an impact in the... Does that make sense? Do you understand? Okay, number five. Uh, context analysis. So usually Paul and his team, they've been going to a place and the first thing they do is preach in the synagogue. But when they come to Philippi, there's no synagogue. So he needs a new strategy. So he needs to spend some time trying to understand how the city works and where he's going to find people and how to start ministry there. And actually, that's just a, it's really obvious, but it's amazing how many people go, oh, well, we did this in... London, and it worked. So now we've moved to this tiny little village in the middle of nowhere. We're going to do exactly the same thing. It's like it's not going to work. It's horses for courses. It's a different place. Do something different. And it's amazing how often, even on training, you know, it can be church planting training, and it's like this is how you plant a church: ten steps. Dig, 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 dig. But you go to somewhere else, and you can't even do step one. And so it's so important. And and Paul and his team they model it here. You go to a new place. You need to first do your research, do your context. It's a, it, so often, mission is a dialogue. You know, in John, Jesus is always dialoguing with people, and he talks to everybody slightly differently. But we often treat mission as a monologue. It's like, I'm just going to preach at people, like preach at people and then hide, and then preach at people again. And it, we, we, you know, we're just monologuing with ourselves, whereas we should be talking to our community and trying to understand what do they need. And so, so often we turn up with all the answers and go, here we are, we've come with the answers. And people go, who are you? We didn't even ask you a question yet. And we see this supremely in Jesus Christ. Jesus came into our world and spent 30 years living amongst people, listening, feeling, trying to understand, relate to people. 30 years listening, and then three years talking. And we'd argue that his 30 years listening made his three years talking really effective. Uh, but so often we just turn up and start talking. You know, start a Sunday meeting, start preaching. And it's like, no, you need to take time to listen. And a lot of that in a new place is learning the language, which takes time. You know, we, our team took two years to study Turkish. People want to learn Arabic. It's often 3,000 hours. 3,000 hours might be three years full time. But often they'll say your first 20 years in Arabic are the hardest. And after that, it gets a little bit easier. You think, wow, that's a real commitment to understanding your context. And um, it's not like we're on batteries. There we go. I don't mind. I can shout. So they take this time, first of all, to come into Philippi and explore and understand and think, where should we start? How should we start? What's that going to look like? So the, the context analysis piece, the research piece, is actually a really important part of uh, preaching the gospel to people, trying to understand. Does that make sense? You understand that? Okay. Okay. Uh, and then they meet this businesswoman called Lydia. And um, Lydia's she's an amazing character. She's very wealthy. So um, 
If she's dealing in purple cloth, she's probably selling to the imperial household, and she owns a house. Only 6% of people in the ancient world owned houses, so she's in the top 6%. So she's a very wealthy lady, and um, God opens her heart. God opens her heart, and Lydia and her whole family are baptized, and then the church starts meeting in their home. So this is kind of the beginning of their journey. But it's really interesting. They could have stopped there. They could have said, oh, we've planted a church there. We've reached some, some people. And, and so let's move on and do something else. But God had given them a vision for the man of Macedonia, the local guy, the kind of the, the salt of the earth, local, what normal people are like. Now, that's not Lydia. Lydia's a beginning, but she's an outsider. She's a foreigner. And this is like sometimes we go to places and we start an international church in English. Yeah, I've got so many friends that have done this, and I've got enormous respect for them. But what are you doing? You've gone to another country where they speak another language, and you started a church in English. You've reached some people that speak English, but you haven't reached the man of Macedonia. You haven't got to the local guy. You haven't actually done what God asked you to do in this story. And so they could have stopped with Lydia. They think, oh, we've got some fruit. Some people have come to faith. Let's move on and do something else. But somehow they've got this thing of, no, no, we're not quite done yet. We need to keep pressing in until we're really reaching local people and local culture in a way that's going to be multipliable and meaningful and lasting. And this woman is going to end up being... A uh, long-term financial supporter of Paul. She's a wealthy businessman. In the future, when he writes Philippians and he says, thank you for giving me money. You know, F- Philippi seems to be one of the best financially supporting churches of Paul. It's probably Lydia. She's probably financing him all the way through his ministry. And you just think, these kind of people are like gold dust. And if you're here and your thing is actually business, I'm going to make money and then I'm going to reinvest that into mission and into the kingdom of God. God bless you. Mission doesn't happen without people like that. I've got a friend, he's an Indian businessman. He runs an engineering company all over the world. And through him, we've been able to get into many countries that we wouldn't otherwise, because he could open a factory somewhere and then he can give someone a visa. So a friend of mine went and uh, started a church in in, um, Japan, in Nagoya in Japan. And it happened through this guy. This guy opened a factory there, got him a visa. He went, studied Japanese, worked in the business, and started a church uh, over a 10-year period. And you think, these kind of people that can open doors, that can use business for mission, business for the kingdom of God, are super important. And for some of you, that might be your thing. And so that's Lydia. And then they carry on, and we're going to meet the slave girl, and we're going to start hitting issues of injustice, and demonic oppression, and the real darkness. And so we're starting to actually touch the kind of the real belly of the city, the real underbelly, the place where all the pain is and all the mess is. And um, we read that when this uh, slave girl, who's got this fortune-telling spirit, is following them around for a few days, it says Paul got really disturbed. And he, was, he was moved. He was impacted by it. it It hurt him emotionally. He saw this issue of injustice and slavery and abuse, and he was like, that's not right. And he was moved by it. And so you know the story. He kind of drives out the demon and sets her free. And it has an impact. It has an impact on her her slave owners economically. Um, And so he's upsetting the status quo. He's speaking up. He's doing something different. And um, really, this is where the spiritual battle starts. Now they're going to start having kickback and opposition 
and pain and challenge. It, when they were just reaching Lydia, it was lovely and it was easy and straightforward, but they were just like camping on the city. They weren't putting roots down. As soon as they start touching the darkness, the darkness starts touching them. And um, that's, that's what happens here is they are now uh, really going to be in, impacted by this. And it's amazing, actually, in, in cross-cultural church planting, how much of your ministry and how much of the front door to the gospel is actually through deliverance and people struggling with demonic issues. So uh, for us in Turkey, but this is true in many Muslim contexts, uh, loads of people, their first contact with the gospel is they've got, this is how it goes in Turkey normally, okay? Uh, People have a demonic problem. They go to the mosque and they go to the imam and they say, I've got this demonic problem and will you please sort it out for me? And the imam will pray and nothing will happen. And he'll go, aha, this one is a Christian demon. So it's not going to listen to my Muslim authority. You need to go find a Christian to sort it out for you. This happens a lot. Okay? So then they'll come and find us and we'll pray for them. But um, uh, this one lady, uh, her name is Senem. Uh, This happened to her. We, We met her first. We're sitting in our church building. And she turns up carrying an enormous silver cross. And going, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. And we were like, hello, welcome, sit down, relax. Who are you? What's your story? And she's there with her enormous silver cross. And she said, I've got a a demon who comes every night and he beats me. And she showed us her back and she's got bruises all the way down her back. And she said, so I went to the imam at the mosque and he prayed and nothing happened. And he said, aha, this is a Christian demon, find a church. So I went to the Catholic church. And the Catholic Church said to me, ah, if you give us lots of money, we'll give you an enormous silver cross. And then when it happens again, you can wave the silver cross and the demons won't come near you. She said, so I gave them all my money and I've got this cross and I tried it and it still doesn't work. Nothing's happening. And I didn't know what to do. And then I came and I found you. And so we, uh, we prayed with her. Uh, she was wonderfully delivered, wonderfully born again. And her and her whole extended family were baptized and brought into the church community. But so often, that will be the, the front door. And even in the UK, if you're reaching Muslims, so often, actually, that's going to be your window into people's lives. But what happens then is you have this kind of this, this backlash. There, there's a riot in the street. They're arrested. They're stripped and beaten and publicly humiliated. And in context, it's demonic. They cast the devil out, so the devil wants to cast them out. And... Um, those who go church planting will encounter both incredible hospitality from people, but also at times incredible anti-hospitality, where people just push away and resist. That's all the best church planting, all the best missionary biographies are full of amazing stories, but also full of amazing pain. Have you ever noticed that? You read Hudson Taylor or Donovan Judson or any of these guys, they're full of pain. And you're just like, wow, why did they suffer so much? And there's just something, it's because you're touching into some darkness, you're making a difference. And um, we found it's really important to talk about that in mission context, because often the missionary appeal kind of thing goes something like this. Isaiah 6, you know, the Lord says, who shall I send? And I say, here I am, send me, and I run to the front. But if you read the rest of Isaiah 6, God says, great, I'm sending you to a really difficult people, and they're going to resist you, and they're going to oppose you, and it's going to be difficult. And Isaiah is going to spend most of his ministry uh, under difficult kings, and he's going to end up 
being sawn in half during the reign of King Manasseh. But no one tells you that bit in the missionary appeal bit. They're just like, here I am, send me. And it's like, yeah, yeah. And then it's going to be really difficult. And so we're trying to make a point of going, yeah, it is really difficult. And God's calling us to really difficult, really painful things. But who's going to go? And so they end up in prison. And um, they're in prison. They've been mistreated, mistried. There's been a, a massive injustice that's been done to them. And yet they're worshipping and praising. And worship and praise is great in a room like this full of Christians. But it's got a different kind of power when you're in prison or when you're in pain or when you're surrounded by darkness. That Worship and praise has a, a different kind of power then. And God sends an earthquake. And it's amazing. Sometimes we want the earthquake without the prison. But in, the more unreached a context is, actually the good stories get gooder and the bad stories get badder. So I can tell you amazing stories from Mission Amongst the Unreached, but I can also tell you horrific stories. And I've just met a guy that's been thrown out of a country uh, here in this room. He's blacklisted from a country. That's a traumatic experience. I've got friends that that's happened to, wrongly imprisoned, persecuted. And there's something about reaching the unreached going places where Jesus isn't known, where you get amazing stories and amazing experiences, but you also get horrific stories and horrific experiences. Uh, one couple, uh, friends of mine from a Muslim country in the North Caucasus region, so near Chechnya, um, they were Muslims and they went on holiday to St. Petersburg in Russia uh, for a holiday, the husband and wife. And while they're there, uh, one day, um, the wife has a dream. And in her dream, she sees the whole Bible revealed to her from Genesis through to the coming of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is revealed to her in one dream. That's, is, to me, that's just really unfair. <laughs> it's amazing. She wakes up and she goes, I need to get baptized. Okay, Muslim woman. Uh, so she goes out and starts wandering around and tries to find a church. Uh, and she finds an Orthodox church in St. Petersburg, and she goes in, and she meets the priest there, and she says, hello, you don't know me, please will you baptize me? And the priest says to her, no, we don't baptize Muslims. And she says, no, no, please, I want to get baptized today, I need to get baptized today. And he says to her, normally people do courses for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then an exam, and if they pass it, then we'll baptize them. She said, ask me anything. So, so he asks her all these questions, and she can answer all of them because she's seen the whole Bible in a dream. Just not, grace is amazing but unfair, yeah? <laughs> and so she gets baptized. She goes back to the hotel. Her, her husband that day, he'd been feeling kind of listless. He'd wandered around. He'd gone into a mosque. He'd prayed. He hadn't really felt anything. He's just feeling a bit, like, frustrated. He says to her, how was your day? She says, you'll never believe what I did today. I got baptized. <laughs> so she leads him to the Lord. Now, this couple are now back in the North Caucasus region, church planting in village after village after village, right across that region, incredibly used by God, friends of mine. And the extraordinary thing is, it's so difficult for them now, but they've had amazing experiences of God that kind of strengthen and equip them for the difficult experiences that they have as well. 
Um, and, and so as they're in prison and they're praying and worshipping, this earthquake comes and the doors open. Now, if it's me and I'm in prison and th- there's an earthquake and the doors open, what do I do? Run! <laughs> yeah? And exactly the same thing happened to Peter earlier in Acts, in Acts chapter 12. He's in prison, there's an earthquake, the doors open and he leaves. But Paul and Silas, they're in prison, there's an earthquake, the door opens and they don't leave. But someone comes in through the door and it's the man from Macedonia. It's the jailer. It's the person that they saw in their vision right at the beginning. And now they have this opportunity to reach him with the gospel and see his whole household come to faith. And so they kept going. They could have stopped with Lydia. Oh, we've planted an international church. They could have stopped when they're imprisoned and uh, thrown in prison. You think, well, the doors have opened. It's a chance to get out. But they're like, no, no, God gave us something to do here. And it's not done yet. So we're going to stick at it until we get there. And now they meet the local guy, the man from Macedonia, the jailer, working class guy, uh, and his whole family who come to faith. And it's really interesting. Twice in this story, we see Lydia and her whole family come to faith, and then the jailer and his whole family come to faith. And so often, again, the West is very individualistic. We often baptize people one at a time, and it's about an individual decision to follow Jesus. But in the East, it's not like that. So often, it's whole families making their decision together, coming to faith together. I was watching in a context like this, and um, there's some Iranian brothers and sisters sitting at the back. And one of them, this very small, very diminutive, quiet Iranian lady. And someone said to me, oh, yeah, she's led a lot of people from her family to the Lord. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. So I went and chatted to her. Hey, sister, great to meet you. What's your story? She said, oh, yeah, I brought quite a few family, uh, people from my family to know Jesus, about 200 people. <laughs> I was like, one, I was like, that's a big family. <laughs> Two, it's like, that's amazing. But so often when people are on their own, they're isolated. They don't have a support network. Friends of mine working in a closed country, um, learning this. And so they, 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 they witness to one lady. She's a prostitute. And she's ready to come to faith. And she's like, please lead me over the line to faith. Please baptize me. I want to be in. I want to be a Christian. And they say to her, no, not yet. Go back, share with a few other people, and then we'll come back in a few weeks and we'll talk again. Can you imagine? Like she's ready to get baptized and they're like, no, not yet. And so they go away. They come back in a few weeks, this team. And this lady is there waiting with 50 other ladies. And it turns out she was the madam in the brothel. So she's gone to all the ladies that she works with. And she said to them, we're all becoming Christians now. (laughs) And they're like, okay. And so they're able to baptize 50 together. And what you get is you get an automatic church. It's a brothel church. Unusual. It's an automatic church. She's got, an auto, she's got a support network. She's not on her own trying to be a Christian. She's got friends to share with and be a community with together. And my friend who's telling the story, he said to me, it's really interesting. The devil would have been quite happy to say, one for you, 50 for me. But we're learning, actually. And so all of these are, are, are things that, that we're learning about mission. Actually, behind every individual, there's a potential people movement. And if we're too quick to extract them from their community and just plug them into our church and make them like us, turn them into an English Christian, then we miss the potential of all the people of the community that they represent. And they don't end up with a support network around them. And so how do you sow people back into their community? and put The yeast is supposed to be in the dough. We're not supposed to take the yeast out of the dough and put it in a yeast box. It doesn't do anything there. 
Okay, just a couple more things. And then this, th so there's this wonderful verse where it says, he washed their wounds and then they washed him in the waters of baptism. And there's this mutual give and take of washing. He washes their wounds, they've got a need, and then they're able to lead him to the Lord and, and wash his sins away in, in baptism. And there's a reciprocity there, there's a give and take. And it's such an important thing because so often coming from the West, as most of us here are from the West, going to other places, we can turn up and go, ah, we're from the West, we've got all the money, we've got all the answers, we've got the plan, we've got the resources, let's just kind of do mission to you poor local indigenous people. And that's so broken in so many ways, it's so patronizing. And, and yet actually here, we've always got something to receive and we've always got something to give. We've always got something to learn and we've always got something to teach. And, and we've always got to look for that kind of mutual reciprocal relationship where it's like, we're contributing something, you're contributing something. Otherwise, we end up with this broken, skewed, one-way relationship, which just is really unhealthy. And then uh, they move on again. They're done in Philippi. They move on. And then the next chapter of the Bible is another story of them going somewhere else and doing it again. So there's this whole thing of redeployment, of moving on and doing something else. And Hudson Taylor called foreign missionaries like the scaffolding. So he said, it's like, you're like the scaffolding around a building. You're not the building. And one day the scaffolding is going to be taken down, taken somewhere else, and used again somewhere else. And so at the moment, in uh, one of the countries where we're working, loads of people are being thrown out. The government have changed their policy. We've had uh, up to 50 people, up, up to 50 guys and their families, so up to 200 people thrown out of that country this year. Uh, in 2019. And that's, that's so hard on all these churches where these guys are serving. But if we go, actually, they were always just temporary. They were always just scaffolding. And the churches, the local, the local guys that have come to faith, that's the community. Then these guys can be, hey, we can redeploy and go somewhere else and go again. And so it means that the church that's planted must be local, must be able to stand on its own feet, must be in the local language, the local idiom, the local style, locally resourced, locally financed. And then finally... Paul ends up with Philippi. He's got an ongoing relationship with them. He'll go visit. He'll send people to go visit. He'll write them letters. You know, if, if Paul didn't have this ongoing relationship, we wouldn't have any of the New Testament because that's what all these letters are, is this kind of ongoing relationship without control. It's not that he's the boss now, but he's got this kind of ongoing, fatherly, caring, relational. Uh, they send money to support him. He sends them teaching and advice. And so this ongoing relationship with control. And wouldn't it be beautiful? And I... I you know, I don't know loads about your context, uh, but wouldn't it be beautiful to think that we've got churches all over the world that all look slightly different from each other? You know, a church in India looks very different from a church in a small village in Africa, looks very different from a church in Iceland. Different language, different style, a totally different feel, but somehow one, one God, one gospel, one Holy Spirit, one church. And so you've got this, this wonderful family that isn't headquartered somewhere in the powerful, wealthy West, but everyone's making a contribution to this multifaceted, beautiful body of Christ. That's the dream. And um, in all of this story, what we see is we see something of Jesus because everything we know about mission, we learn from Jesus himself. Jesus got in the boat of frail humanity. He left his comfortable heaven. He came into the world set people free from demons, people open their hearts and their homes to him, 
Jesus was mistreated, humiliated, beaten, rejected, imprisoned. And even in the prison of death, Jesus has this miracle where the doors miraculously open. And so all the way through this story, we see something here of the gospel, which is what motivates us because we've been missioned to, we can mission to others. Because God came to us, we go to others. Because we've been accepted, we accept. Because we've been loved, we love. And so all of this comes out of our understanding of who Jesus is and the gospel. Amen. Amen. I'd love us just to take a moment to pray. Shall we stand together? And um, let's just lift our hands in the presence of God. And just receive from him, I don't know what question you came with today. We're going to pray a little bit, and then at the end, if you want to ask a question, you, we'll be hanging around, you can come and chat. But right now, let's lift our eyes to the Lord. Father, I thank you for this great mission that you've called us to. We look at the, the great big world. We look at unreached cities. We look at injustice. We think there are many Lydia's. There are many slave girls. There are many Philippian jailers. There are many households behind all of those people. We know that you're saying, who will go? We're here because we're saying, Lord, here I am, send me. We know that it will be difficult and that there will be darkness and pain. My prayer right now, Lord, is that you give to each one here courage and faith and resilience and a, a, a track in their mind where they can see what to do. I do feel there are some here who actually you've done all the preparing that you need to do and it's just time to get in the boat. And the, the only thing that's left now is that, that step, that courage bit of stepping off dry land into a rickety little boat. And for some of you, that's the moment. Uh, I feel for others, God has spoken to you about specific places. I actually feel there's um, someone here, you're really exploring Cairo, and you've had this idea of Cairo or Egypt on your heart. Uh, I'd love to pray for you later. I feel that the Lord would just want to confirm that for you and speak to you about that. So come Holy Spirit, I pray. Bless each one. Let us receive from you courage strength, faith. I pray for uh, this family of churches, this movement, Nick and his team. I pray for clear strategy. I pray for a few kind of great flagship cross-cultural church planting projects over the next few years that they can really get behind and celebrate and put a flag in a couple of places uh, with confidence and faith. I, I thank you for all the learning, all the instruction that there is, and we bless these guys in Jesus' name. Amen.